We want to welcome you to the Bible teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church, where our desire is to honor God by faithful obedience to His Word. If you want to understand the Bible better, please continue to listen as Pastor Matt Postiff explains and applies the biblical text one verse at a time. You can reach us with questions or for more teaching audio and print material at our website, fbcaa.org. You can also watch our services live at fbcaa.org live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. Join us now as Pastor Postiff opens God's Word. Let's turn our Bibles, please, to your Old Testament minor prophets, to the book of Zephaniah. We were there before, not too long ago, but I did a revision on this. Find Nahum or Habakkuk, keep going. You'll get to Zephaniah, three chapters. Haggai, you've gone too far. Uh, Zechariah, Malachi, you've gone too far. Zephaniah. I've been studying a number of the minor prophets in preparation for my uh, teaching at the uh, church in Salem and uh, next, next weekend. Uh, and I decided to, to work on Zephaniah among other books because I hadn't done much in the book uh, study and I'd written an outline for it. But this book is kind of a, follows what I'll call a classic minor prophet pattern, and that is it speaks about coming judgment, but also about a coming salvation, and really that's the truth that I've just laid out uh, as I give you Zephaniah in one message. Of course, we're not going to have time to go through the whole thing, but uh, we will get a little bit into it here. Zephaniah prophesied during the reign of Josiah. You see that in verse number one. It says that he was the son of uh, Cushi, Gedaliah, Amariah, and Hezekiah in turn, each one. Um, and so he was the offspring of royal lineage. He was a great, great grandson of King Hezekiah. And this is fairly unique, if not totally unique in Israel's history, that you'd have a prophet who has come out of the royal line prophesying during the reign of another king. So very interesting. Of course, King David was a prophet as well. Right, uh, Acts chapter 2.30 says that he prophesied knowing that it wasn't himself that he spoke about, but it was Messiah, who his seed, who God would raise up before he saw corruption uh, in Acts 2.30, I think I mentioned that. And Solomon, after a fashion, too, was a prophet. After all, he wrote a lot of Proverbs, didn't he? So he kind of had that ministry. But the royals were not usually prophets, and particularly the evil ones were not prophets, right? Uh, lots of evil kings that wouldn't have qualified whatsoever. Jesus, of course, he'll be uh, not only king, but also priest and prophet. So he has all three offices. But here we have a royal lineage fellow with uh, prophecy ministry. Um, he, Josiah was king from 640 to 609. And so uh, the ministry of Zephaniah has to be in that period of time. But as you recall, Josiah undertook religious reforms after the law was found by Hilkiah in the temple. And he realized, this is a super understatement, we blew it. You know, we, we, we really messed up big time. And so when the law was read to him, he tore his clothes and he was just in terrible angst about what happened. 
And so God saw his tender heart and undertook uh, for him to say, look, we're not going to have the disaster during your lifetime. Um, But reforms were undertaken, and that was in the later part of his kingship, more towards the end of it, middle to end. So we could say probably Zephaniah prophesied around 640 to 620 in the first half. Why can I say that? Because he's talking a lot about very bad things in Judah. So he's talking about the situation before the reforms began. That's the point that I'm taking. Yes. Uh, you know what? Yes, he became king when he was eight, and I want to say that he was either 18 or it was when he was 26. Was it 18 years later? He was 18 years old. Okay. Um, well, let's double check that because I just I saw that I do have the references in my notes. It's in Second Kings. It's also in Second Chronicles. But when you get to Kings and Chronicles, the chapters totally go away from my brain because they're all mixed together. Second Kings twenty-two. Now you remember, I just was passing this as I went through chapter twenty-one. The guy who is reigning before him. Uh, Manasseh for a very long time, 55 years, and then Ammon, and both of them were very evil kings. So you see the context in which Zephaniah was ministering, the beginning of Josiah, was very, you know, religiously very bad. And so, yeah, it's in the 18th year of King Josiah that the king sent. So is that the king, is that his age, or is that the 18th year of his reign? What do you think? Uh, verse 3, 2 Kings 22, verse 3. What's that? Probably his reign. So 8, 18, 26. Let's see, it says that he reigned 31 years, so he's past the halfway point. 18 years more of degradation in Judah after Manasseh and Ammon. And, and then, so you can see how, listen, listen to this, 55 years of Manasseh, evil. Ammon, two more years, so that's 57, plus 18, 75 years, and the law has just been thrown to the side. So you can imagine, if the church doesn't have the Bible for 75 years, what's the church going to look like after that? I mean, that's, that's three generations. I mean, maybe it's less than three generations, but say three times 25, each generation being 25. It's just going to be a mess. And so that's what it was. So uh, Manasseh and Ammon, the nation was plunged into sin and idolatry. And just like in the northern kingdom, a hundred years earlier, the die was cast. God was going to punish Judah, just like he punished Israel. In fact, in Zephaniah, we'll see uh, portions in here where the Lord says, look, you saw everything that I did to all the other nations, and it must include uh, Israel, the northern kingdom. You saw all of that, and you still did what you did. I mean, you know, usually when the younger sibling sees the older sibling get it from the parents for being bad, the younger sibling gets some wisdom and says, well, I'm not going to do that, or at least I won't get caught. (laughs) You know, so it's just, God was even surprised at this. We'll come to that, but In the broader picture of world history during this time, power is shifting from the Assyrian Empire to the Babylonian 
Empire. Nabopolassar was king, and toward the end of this time, he was uh, dying at his very old age, and Nebuchadnezzar, his offspring, shortly followed to his throne. Well, you know, Nebuchadnezzar reigned for like 40 years or something crazy like that, too. And um, just a few years after Josiah died in 609, Nebuchadnezzar defeated Israel and took Daniel and his friends to Babylon in 605, just four years, three to four years after his death. So this is the context in which Zephaniah is it's like at the last minute, almost, not quite, but you know, the last days of the southern kingdom. And uh, Judah is in those last days as its own kingdom. God's judgment is about to fall. The northern kingdom is already gone. It's been gone for over 100 years, well, maybe about 100 years at the time that Zephaniah is preaching to the people. One of the problems in interpreting the minor prophets is that it talk, they talk about the day of the Lord, you know, Amos. You know, woe to you that desire the day of the Lord because it's a day of darkness and not of light, talking about the judgment aspect of the day of the Lord. So will the day of the Lord, the question is, will it be uh, in the far future or is it near term to these people? And to me, there seem to be a number of passages that indicate that God's talking about a near day of judgment, but then there are a number of other passages that make it clear that he's talking about a far day of judgment. And I uh, think that although there are some advocates who say that the day of the Lord is only ever in the far future, I've, for now I've landed on the side that most of the time it's in the far future, but some of the time the Lord is just simply saying, look, the day of the Lord's wrath is coming, and that is, looks a whole lot like the day of the Lord's wrath in the end times because it's the same basic thing. It's just going to be at a different time, but the Lord's wrath is going to be poured out anyway. They're going to look very similar to one another. I don't take it that, you know, like when Zephaniah seems to say the day of the Lord is coming soon, that that's marking a double fulfillment, like it's going to come soon and come later. I think there's, each passage has to be interpreted on its own right. In my notes, I give an outline for the book as I do for the other minor prophets. In my notes for those, um, we have the introduction to the book in chapter 1-1, then the, um, a, an explanation of thorough judgment on Judah and Jerusalem in chapter 1, uh, most of the, uh, actually all of the chapter, thorough judgment on Judah and Jerusalem. Then there's a call to repentance in chapter 2, verses 1-3, to and that's a fascinating section of Scripture there's a judgment on the nations from 2.4 to 2.15. And uh, I won't spend a lot of time on those tonight, but I'll just mention that God mentions that he is going to judge the seacoast nations to the west, uh, Moab and Ammon to the east, Ethiopia to the south, and Assyria and Nineveh to the north. So he basically goes the whole compass all the way around and says, I'm going to get them all. Anybody who's been uh, en at enmity with my people... Um, and I uh, just was thinking about, you know, the judgment, obviously, like in chapter 2, verse 4. Look at the words there in 2, 4. You notice what it says? Gaza. Well, how much more relevant can you get, uh, you know, today having all that going on? Gaza shall be forsaken, Ashkelon desolate, Ashdod will be driven out at noonday. Those were three cities of what people group? Do you remember? What's that? Well, they basically Canaanites in a broad sense, but they're Philistines, Philistine cities, it's more specifically. And you had two other cities as well, 
Uh, Goliath was of Gath, was another one of those cities. And uh, the fifth one has escaped me at the moment. Somebody will remember it. But Gad, Gad, Gaza, Ashkelon, Ekron, Gath, and it's in here somewhere. But um, So we have the judgment on the nations all the way around. Then charges against Judah in chapter 3. The rebellion of, of the people, the justice of God is mentioned here, and then God goes into a section of future judgment and blessing, judgment on the nations and restoration of the nations in chapter 3. Well, let's see how far we get here uh, in, in the book. We'll just uh, kind of push ahead. The opening words of chapter 1 tell us that in judgment, God will utterly consume everything from the land. He says that in verse number 2, I will consume man and beast, birds of the heavens, fish of the sea, and the stumbling blocks along with the wicked. I will cut off man from the face of the land, says the Lord. I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And I take this as a near-term judgment. I think it was fulfilled with Babylon coming in 605, 597, 586 B.C., three times, three incursions. Uh, Notice what he says in verse 4. In the middle, I will cut off every trace of Baal from this place. The names of the idolatrous priests with the pagan priests, those who worship the host of heaven on the housetops, those who swear oaths by the Lord, but also who swear by Milcom, those who have turned back from following the Lord and have not sought the Lord nor inquired of Him. So this is a thorough, all-encompassing, devastating judgment of God that was about to occur by the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. Now this, when God says, I will consume things from the face of the land, I think that's a good translation. I don't think it's from the face of the earth. Okay, the word aretz can be earth or land, but I think it's land here. It's referring to the southern kingdom, not the wiping out of the whole earth like he did, God did during the flood, say. But his, his purpose was not just to destroy for destruction's sake. What was it? I'm going to consume all of this so that I will cut off all the idols from that place. It has to be cleansed because it's filthy, dirty. He had purpose to set his name in this place. Remember, Jerusalem, the place of my eternal dwelling, the place where is the footstool of my feet, the place where the where the Shekinah glory comes, and they've defiled it even in the temple. I mean, they lost God's word in the temple. I mean, that's like, you know, everybody losing their Bible in the church here and not being able to find a Bible. Come on, this is a Bible church, isn't it? (laughs) Yeah, it's a really bad situation. The nation got into Baal worship. They had priests for that purpose. They They worshiped the heavenly bodies. You see that? Those who worship the host of heaven on the housetops. This is not talking about going stargazing, you know, at night on the housetop. This is them going up to worship the sun and the moon and the stars. The, um, what do you call those, constellations, the, you know, the Orions and the this and the that, and thinking they're some kind of special thing. No, they're just stars that God has put into a certain arrangement so that when you look at them, they look like a, you know, a, an object. That's not worthy of worship. The God who put them there is the only one worthy of worship. They worshiped the God Milcom, Milcom, but they had turned away from the Lord. 
Now, just notice that God says, I am going to judge. And variously over the course of time, there have been periods of judgment and periods of mercy, judgment and mercy. And wrath, remember mercy, Habakkuk prays. Uh, God goes through these cycles because he's working on the people to bring the, the, you know, the world's history to its conclusion. And uh, at a certain point, God just can't take any more sin, any more idolatry. The land, he says, would spit out the Ammonites, would vomit them out because of their wickedness. And that's what happened when he uh, had Israel go in years and years before this uh, for, let's see, uh, trying to just quickly do my math here. I said around 600, so, you know, four to 800 years before that, they were cleansing the land of the Canaanites who had committed child sacrifice and all kinds of wickedness, and God was using the nation of Israel as an instrument to judge them. Uh, But there's a future edition of judgment, and I want to just use this as an opportunity to remind you of that as a way of application. You know, there's another judgment coming that's going to dissolve everything. And Peter argues in 2 Peter 3.10 that if this is happening, going to happen, then what kind of people should we be in all godliness and righteousness? Um, You know, many people today live as though that judgment is not going to happen. Well, it is going to happen. People can ignore it all they want, but they're going to be sorry in the end. People make a covenant with death, like in Isaiah chapter 28. You know, death will not come and hurt us, so to speak, thinking death will not hurt them when it comes, but that's just not true, you know. This 40-odd-year-old guy that I mentioned that's a millionaire and he's doing all kinds of things to make himself young and try to live forever, you know. I've got the heart of a 27-year-old. Yeah, well, that's not the heart of a (laughs) one-year-old. And uh, you're aging, buddy, and you might live till you're 90, but once to die is not, you can't break that, no no matter how much you try. That's the world, you know, they they have this, they just totally ignore. Where, Where is the promise of his coming? But we who know God also can get sidetracked and get seduced by materialism and deceived by our minds and put a lot of resources into things that are going to burn up. But Peter asks, why would we do that if everything is going to burn up? What, what sort of person should we be like? Well, look at chapter 1-5. It says, those who worship the host of heaven on the housetops and swear oaths by the Lord, but also swear by Milcom. You might think the middle of 5 is like, oh, well, good. At least they swear oaths by God. At least they, no, they also swear by Milcom. This is syncretism, the combining of two religions. God condemns it. You know, these, those uh, making a worship or swearing oaths by the Lord in the middle of verse 5, those count for nothing. Those just make God sick to his stomach. You're misusing his name. You're, you're uh, taking his name in vain if you're doing that and also swearing by, by Milcom. So uh, making their oaths, their promises, their worship expressions and all of that. You know, it's kind of like giving... You know, well, I, I put money in the plate every week, but I also give to this other cause, and it's a wicked cause. You know, like, okay, <laughs> how does that work? They're doing rituals for other gods at the same time. They worship Milcom, sometimes spelled Malcam. 
This was an Ammonite god, Milcom, and the name derived from the word for king, basically, and, and also the Hebrew suffix, their, their king, the am ending, their king. So it was basically their king, their king god, basically the same as Molech, also derived from the word for king, which was a Canaanite god whose worship consisted of child sacrifice. I tend to think of it, I'm not sure exactly how they conceived it. I don't know the details enough, but I think of it kind of like Zeus and Jupiter. They're the same. Milcom, Molech, you know, six of one, half a dozen of another. They're all the same. They were local names for basically the same God. But, you know, and some, some believe that Baal is in with that bunch as well since his name means Lord. But regardless, whether they're exactly the same or they're different ones, they're all demonic. The details are of a little consequence since it's all idolatry and completely condemned by God. And I would say this, though this might seem, I don't know, strong or something, but I'm pretty convinced. All of this basically amounts to Satan worship, no matter what name it goes under. Now I want you to notice too that the object of their worship was their king god, Milcom. Remember how I said Melak and then the ending, the M ending meaning their king? I, I paused to reflect on that and I, I, I said this in my notes, what you worship is your king. What you worship is your king. Now God, the true God, is the only true object of worship and our only true king. He is our Lord. Idolaters have other lords, like Baal, right? Baal means Lord. And they have other kings. So I ask the question then, if you refuse to have Jesus as your Lord, then may I ask, who is your Lord? If your Lord is not Jesus, then I would suggest that you have some other Lord. If you dig deep enough, you'll see it in your life. And if that's the case, if you have some other Lord than Jesus and his Father, God in heaven, then what does that make you? An idolater. An idolater. So you must confess Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead so you can be saved. But if you have some other Lord, that's putting something above God. That's breaking the first table of the law, the first commandments. You should have no other gods before me. And uh, that's no good. Obviously, if somebody's steeped in idolatry, they're not going to seek the Lord nor follow him. Verse 6 says, Those who have turned back from following the Lord and have not sought the Lord nor inquired of him. I'm just thinking we were going over with our boys Proverbs 3, you know, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. Does that sound like these people? These people didn't do that. They, they didn't seek the Lord. They didn't inquire of the Lord. They didn't follow the Lord. They were just all off on their own. Be silent in the presence of the Lord God, verse 7 says. For the day of the Lord, what? Is at hand. That's why I think it's near. For the Lord has prepared a sacrifice. He has invited his guests. It doesn't sound like something that's going to come in hundreds or thousands of years to me something that is near 
and I'll just live with that tension that there are some near and some far judgments. God, God does that. Um, I tied in also verse 14 here where it says, The great day of the Lord is near. It is near and hastens quickly. The noise of the day of the Lord is bitter. There the mighty men shall cry out. So it's a near term. Probably within the next five to 20 years, or let's see, yeah, five to 20 years is when that's going to occur uh, after the end of Josiah's reign. At least God promised him he wouldn't see that. So it was after his reign. Uh, there is another day of the Lord, uh, the, the real technical day of the Lord, which is farther off and still future to us in 2023. But the two events are so similar as to be able to share, in a sense, prophetic descriptions or characteristics, perhaps would be a better way of saying it. They share characteristics or character traits. Um, let's keep reading in uh, verse Eight, and it shall be in the day of the Lord's sacrifice that I will punish the princes and the king's children, all such as are clothed with foreign apparel. In the same day I will punish all those who leap over the threshold. That's some kind of pagan practice, I think. Who fill their master's houses with violence and deceit. And there shall be on that day, says the Lord, the sound of a mournful cry from the fish gate, a wailing from the second quarter, and a loud crashing from the hills. Wail, you inhabitants of Maktesh, for all the merchant people are cut down, all those who handle money are cut off, and it shall come to pass at that time that I will search Jerusalem with lamps. Why, why lamps? You're not going to be able to hide out in the dark corners. See that? I will punish the men who are settled in complacency, who say in their heart, the Lord will not do good, nor will he do evil. Well, if the Lord won't do good and he won't do evil, what does that mean? He's not going to do anything. The Lord's not going to do anything. We're going to get away with whatever we want to get away with. He's irrelevant. Therefore, he says, their goods shall become booty. Their house is a desolation. They shall build houses but not inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards but not drink their wine. The great day of the Lord is near. It is near and hastens quickly. We read this before. The noise of the day of the Lord is bitter. There the mighty men shall cry out. That day is a day of wrath a day of trouble and distress, a day of devastation and desolation, a day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet and alarm against the fortified cities and against the high towers. You know, today we would say, like in Israel, a day of bomb sirens over and over again. Throughout the day and the night, every time they sound in your neighborhood, you have to run for cover. Mm. I will bring distress upon men, and they shall walk like blind men because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood shall be poured out like dust, and their flesh like refuse. So their lives are of no account. They're, they're dead. Good is dead. Verse 18, listen to this. Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them. You're not going to be able to say, oh, hey, I've got a big bank account. Doesn't that get me out of this? Nope. In the day of the Lord's wrath, but the whole land shall be devoured by the fire of his jealousy, for he will make speedy riddance of all those who dwell in the land. And again, why is God doing that? He's not doing it just to be mean and violent and malevolent and capricious. He's doing it to rid the land of idolatry, of all of the evils that were being done. 
This section ends, and this is where we'll have to end tonight, in chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. God says this, Gather yourselves together, yes, gather together, O undesirable nation. And I want you to listen to these phrases. Before the decree is issued, or the day passes like chaff, before the Lord's fierce anger comes upon you, before the day of the Lord's anger comes upon you, Seek the Lord, all you meek of the earth, who have upheld his justice. Seek righteousness. Seek humility. It may be that you will be hidden in the day of the Lord's anger. So the promise of impending judgment concludes with a call to repent. Notice how God offers an extension of hope to those who repent. If you repent before the decree is issued, before the Lord's anger comes upon the nation, before the day of the Lord's anger, this word is before is repeated three times, indicating there's an important timing to judge to uh, to repentance, to gathering before the Lord and calling upon Him. Judah is told to seek God and do so in a timely fashion, so that they can be hidden from the Lord's wrath. Maybe. There will be collateral damage on God's people, but maybe God will provide a way of escape for them like he does for us from the tribulation. So the concluding application, you're not going to be surprised when you hear it, but the door is open for you too to be cleansed before the Lord's wrath falls on the earth in that final and calamitous day of the Lord's judgment. Young people, are you listening? Before you die, you can turn to the Lord. Before you face final judgment, Paul says it this way, today is the day of salvation. Return to God as your Lord and King now, not only because of what we just read in chapter 1, but also because the nations are going to face similar judgment, and there's going to be no place on earth for you to escape at that time. You have to turn before, you know, before it's too late. When you pass away, it's too late. When God pours out his justice upon the earth, the tribulation, well, there'll be some who might come to faith during the tribulation. I mean, there will be, but it's going to be awfully tough. But certainly, the the, the call of Scripture is, today is the day of salvation. And so we call you to listen to what the Lord has to say about the matter of repentance. And, uh, you know, take seriously that he's going to be judged. Don't just pretend it away. You know, oh, it's it's uh, it's just a story. Except the story is backed up by so much history that God has already judged. You know, you forget that God poured out the flood on the nations of the world and wiped out everything. That's just one. He's going to burn up everything in a similar manner, destroy, flatten everything by fire, not by flood the next time. And so it behooves us to be right with the Lord and take this call to repentance seriously. They had it then. We still have it now in a different context, but similar enough that it doesn't make all that much difference, does it? Judgment's coming. Lord, I pray that you'd take these words from chapter 1 and early chapter 2 and Zephaniah as as remote as they might seem, 600 years before Christ, 2,600 years ago, they are just as relevant now 
as they were then. Even though the, the Babylonian judgment has passed, your judgment's still uh, ticking. And I pray that you would help us to come to, to know Christ before we uh, face that judgment and know that when we do come to you that you will provide forgiveness, regeneration, a new life, new joy, new happiness, uh, but a new connection to you that we didn't have before and a good hope for the future. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, we'll have to do part two maybe next Wednesday. We'll see how that goes. But Yes, sir, John. I'm actually in the middle of writing a timeline for all of those minor prophets, so I don't have Habakkuk right in my brain at the moment, fresh, but it is right around the same time before the Chaldeans or the Babylonians came uh, when God promised that he was going to uh, judge them. And, of course, Habakkuk then very, seems to be very closely placed, so he may be even pa- after uh, Zephaniah's ministry. I have to double-check the calendar uh, of dates that I have uh, been working on, but um, it's so urgent to him that he just, he's beside himself. How can you use the Chaldeans to judge us? Very bad things happening to the nation. Well, because just like God used you to judge the Canaanites, now God's going to use the Babylonians to judge you. And then later on, God's going to judge them. But yeah, it's around the same, around the same time. Thank you for that good question. All right, those of you that are online, thanks for viewing tonight. God bless you, and we will see you soon uh, again. But until then, uh, have a good night and uh, blessings to you. May God give you peace. Amen.